morning will be in Numbers chapter 6. So let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn there, Numbers chapter 6. All my friends are doing it, why can't I? A question that no doubt has been spoken in your home by you as a young person or by your children at some point. And uh, rules for young people as well as those who are older can feel restrictive at times. And especially when we're at home, it feels like our parents are cold and unfeeling, that they simply want to have things done their way, that they don't love us, they don't have any good in mind for us. But those of us who have been under the loving care of thoughtful rules for a time realized that they were meant for our good, right? And that it was actually a way for our parents to pour out their blessing on us by keeping us from what would harm us. And this was most clearly seen in, in the friends that we had who were unrestrained, who had parents who let them do anything that they wanted. Sure, there was a little part of us that desired to have no restraints and to be able to do and, and watch whatever we wanted, but, but when we think rationally, we realize that those things only lead to spiritual disaster. And so rules, when they're thoughtfully done, are actually helpful, even when we don't understand them fully. Numbers, chapters 1-10 through 10 are all about God's preparation for the people of Israel to follow God through the wilderness, to the promised land. They're getting ready to travel in the wilderness. And there are two primary themes that keep recurring in these chapters. One, God is holy. And two, if God is going to meet with his people, they must come to him on his terms. So God is holy and we must come to him on his terms. Now, when we consider these laws for numbering the people and the laws for handling the tabernacle and its furnishings and laws for remo- removing impurity and, and, and laws for voluntary dedication to God, as we'll see today, we might look at God and say, well, God, you are being restrictive and unfeeling. Wouldn't it be better if I were free from the restraints of these rules? But here in chapter 6, we get a window into why God would be so serious about holiness. This chapter begins with uh, more ritual purification, and then it ends with a pronouncement of blessing. And so let's consider this section uh, on purification, the beginning of the chapter, and then the pronouncement of blessing at the end of the chapter, and see if we can make sense of Moses' placement of one right after the other. So let me read chapter 6 for us, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor any eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation... He shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vows of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. 
He shall let the locks of hair on his head grow long. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. But if a man dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his dedicated head of hair, then he shall shave him his head on the day when he becomes clean. He shall shave it on the seventh day. Then on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the doorway of the tent of meeting. The priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make atonement for him concerning his sin because of the dead person. And that same day he shall consecrate his head and shall dedicate to the Lord his day as a Nazarite and shall bring a male lamb, a year old, for a guilt offering. But the former days will be void because the separation was defiled. Now this is the law of the Nazarite when the days of his separation are fulfilled. He shall bring the offering to the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb a year old without defect for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb a year old without defect for a sin offering, and one ram without defect for a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers spread with oil, along with their grain offering and their drink offering. Then the priest shall present them before the Lord and shall offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. He shall also offer the, the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord together with a basket of unleavened cakes. The priest shall likewise offer its grain offering and its drink offering. The Nazarite shall then shave his dedicated head of hair at the doorway of the tent of meeting and take the dedicated hair of his head and put it on the fire which is under the sacrifice of peace offerings. The priest shall take the ram's shoulder when it has been boiled and one unleavened cake out of the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his dedicated hair. Then the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. It is holy for the priest, together with the the breast offering by waving, and the thigh offered by lifting up, and afterward the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows his offering to the Lord according to his separation, in addition to what else he can afford, according to his vow which he takes so he shall do according to the law of his separation. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and then I will bless them. Here in chapter 6, I think Moses wants us to see that God desires to live among his people so that he can bless them. So the first section is purification. How does a person who voluntarily wants to be purified before God, who wants to be set apart as holy, how does he do that? And then the last part of the, the text, the last six verses there, talk about God's blessing. That God wants to bless his people, but first we have to be presented before him as pure. So first, let's look at the Nazarite vow in verses 1 through 21, and then we'll look at God's promise of blessing in verses 22 through 27. The Nazarite vow. In verses 1 and 2, we see the nature of the vow. Notice in verse 2 that it's voluntary. When a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of the Nazarite to dedicate himself. So this is a voluntary command, and it's also temporary. In verse 13, he says, Now when the days are over, he has these offerings to give. So when we think of the Nazarite vow, we think of people like who? 
like Samson and Samuel, right? They actually had the Nazarite vow for their entire lives. That's not typically the way that the Nazarite vow worked. Now, in those cases, it was fine. that uh, Someone could dedicate, in this case, their child. Samson's parents dedicated their child, Samson, to this vow for his whole life. He could not cut his hair or touch a dead body or, or um, drink any, anything that have, had, had any grape juice in it of any kind. Uh, but, but generally speaking, this was meant for anyone who wanted to voluntarily set themselves apart for God. They wanted to separate themselves, make themselves holy for a, a given period of time. This was uh, something they could do permanently, but generally it was temporary. It would be similar to maybe fasting today. right? That It's voluntary and temporary. It's a means by which a person can reflect on God and focus on His purposes. That's what this Nazarite vow was, saying, God, you are holy, and I want to take this time where I'm going to set myself apart, set myself apart from things that I otherwise could have done and, and um, not have my hair cut and not drink any wine and not uh, touch any dead body. A person who took a Nazarite vow would be restricted from these three things that we'll see in verses 3 through 8. Um, but we need to keep in mind that these same three restrictions that they're voluntarily refraining from are the same three restrictions that the priests had all the time. That they were not to drink any wine. They were not to have their hair cut. So in a sense, a Nazarite was a kind of a temporary priest. The priests were required to set their whole lives apart for God, but anyone anyone in Israel could volunteer to do it for a short time. And so that's what's going on here in chapter 6. So let's look at the requirements here in verses 3 through 12. And there are three. First, no grapes. Verses 3 and 4. No grapes. Before the days of water bottles and filtration systems, the most common drink was wine, especially at festivals. And, and so wine was a symbol in their day of happiness and delight. But a person who would take this vow would refrain from that which he could have delighted in. From any kind of anything that was made from grapes, even dried grapes, raisins, right? And it, it was a symbol to the people around them and to God that I'm abstaining from something that brings me to light in order to find satisfaction in God, similar to fasting again, right? We're abstaining from something that we need and that we delight in, but we're doing it in order to reflect on God and show that my ultimate satisfaction is found in God. My ultimate focus is in God. So first, no grapes, verses 3 and 4. Second, no razor, verse 5. That he, he would not allow his hair to be cut for the entirety of the vow. Then at the end of his, his vow, according to verse 18, he would have his hair cut. And the, 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 the hair that was cut would be placed on the off, off on the altar, underneath the peace offering in the fire, it would be burned up and presented before God. Notice the purpose of no razor in verse 5. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled. Now, again, this is not, as we've talked about, the difference between holiness and uncleanness. This is not that he was being sinful in having hair that was being cut. Uh, the point is, is that he was being set apart to do something that God had required of him if he's going to take this vow. Hair 
was a symbol of life. It, it grows, right? And so as it's growing, it, it shows life. But if a person is, um, is refraining from cutting it, he's allowing his hair to grow, then people would see that, that he is uh, finding his life in God. So no grapes, no razor, and then thirdly, no corpses. Verses 6 through, eight, or six through 12. No corpses. He could not contact a dead body, either inadvertently or advertently. So, for example, in verses 9 through 12, the illustration is used of uh, if, if you're sleeping in your tent and in another room of the tent or another part of the tent, someone else dies, even though you don't touch them, you actually have become unholy and you've violated the, the requirements of the Nazarite vow. And so now you have to start back over again. So go to the priest, tells all the responsibilities that they have. Um, go back to the priest and start over again. And uh, so that's what would have, have to happen. Death came into the world by sin. And so God is saying with this requirement of no corpses that he didn't want these Nazarites to have any contact with that which symbolized death. And so look at the summary here again, verse 8, of why all the days of his separation he is holy to the Lord. So here's the purpose of this whole Nazarite vow so that he would be set apart as holy, as separate. That's the idea of holiness, that he's separate from other people. In verses 13 through 21, we see the completion the completion of the Nazarite vow, verses 13 to 21. In order to complete the vow, the three restrictions would, have, would not be violated for the entirety of the vow, for however long it was. And then at the end of the time period, five sacrifices had to be brought to the priest in order to kind of complete it or finalize it. The first was a burnt offering in verse 14 and then a sin offering and then a peace offering all in verse 14 along with his shaved hair in verse 18 and then also a grain offering and a drink offering in verse 15. So you have burnt, sin, peace, grain, and drink offering all being presented to the, to the priest along with his hair and the priest takes these offerings, waves them before the Lord, and signifies that, that the, the uh, proper requirements were met, that this person did make it through the Nazarite vow without violating it. So now the interesting part of this text is this last section that seems to come out of nowhere. The prayer of blessing on Israel in verses 22 through 27. They seem to be disconnected from what has been going on in chapters 1 through 10. But notice Moses places, Moses places this prayer of blessing immediately after the Nazarite vow, beginning with the word in verse 22, then, then the Lord spoke to Moses. So why, Moses, why put this here? Why talk about God's blessing in the context of what we've been talking about, which is purification of the camp? Right? Make sure that the defilement is outside the camp. Those who want to become holy enter into this Nazarite vow for a time period. Why put it here? And I think the purpose is that God is concerned about holiness in the camp of Israel. That's why he's been taking so much, so much time talking about what's required to make sure that the people of Israel are set up and ready for the presence of God to come and live among them. And he is going to come and live among them. We're going to see that next week. God is concerned about holiness within the camp. He is concerned that His people meet with Him on His terms. But why? 
Why, does, why is God so concerned about his own holiness? Why is he so concerned about the people's holiness that they meet with him on his terms? And here's the answer in verses 22 through 27. God wants his people to be holy so that he can dwell among them. So that he can dwell among them, so that he can bless them. Here's why God wants you to be holy. So that he can bless you. That's why I think he purposely places this section uh, about a blessing in the context of this larger section of what's going on, this larger narrative of holiness. Notice the source of blessing in verse 22. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. In verse 24, the Lord bless you. Verse 25, the Lord make his. Verse 26, the Lord lift. So the source of blessing on the people of Israel is the Lord. The recipients in verse 23 are the people of Israel. Speak to Aaron and to his sons. Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. So it's the Levites, all of the priests, and all the people. Those are the recipients of the blessing. And the nature of the blessing is seen in verses 24 through 27. First, it's grace in life. The Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. It's grace in life. God wants to provide His blessing for the people. He wants to uh, give them land and family and nation. See this also in verse 25. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift His countenance on you. That, that He would show His grace in verse 25 like the brightness of the sun. That it would be so obvious that God's grace is upon His people. That, verse 26, He would direct His face towards them. right? That His countenance would be lifted up towards them. So it would not be turned away from it. Whenever we see in the Scriptures where God's countenance is turned away from something, it shows that He is judging them. right? Like when God turned His back on Christ. He was judging Christ for the sake of our sins. And, and so when God shines His face or when He... Sh- lifts his countenance towards his people, it shows the opposite of judgment, doesn't it? It shows that God wants to bless his people. Verse 26, at the end, that he would give you peace. But not only does God want to, to pour out grace to his people, he also wants to protect them. Look at the second part of verse 24. And to keep you. The Lord keep you. Right? That he wants to protect you. And, and we see in, in Deuteronomy that God actually causes them to be fed throughout the wilderness and also that they are clothed, that their clothes don't wear out, that they're protected from their enemies. So the Lord is blessing them and keeping them, at least for a period of time. They're they're going to turn away from God, remember, and God's going to have to judge them, but but for a period of time God does protect them. And then verse twenty seven we also see that that God wants to mark them out as his possession. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I then will bless them. God is saying, I want to write my name on the people. On what kind of things do we write our name? Right? We write our name on the things that we own. And what God is doing here is He's writing His name on Israel to show that they belong to Him. It's similar to the end times when, when He will give us a name, that He will write our, a name for us on our forehead. Revelation 2.17. Revelation Revelation 3.12 says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, 
God's saying, listen, I own you. You belong to me. And the reason that you belong to me is so that I can bless you. So let's consider um, two principle, three principles tonight, or this morning. Three principles. Number one, God's rules or regulations for us are not meant for our harm. God's rules for us are not meant for our harm. We may look at rules and regulations from God as restrictive and binding. As if God is somehow restricting us from greater happiness. If we didn't have all these restraints, we could do more. We could be more happy. But God's regulations are not meant for our harm, are they? No more than, than water is meant for the harm of a fish. Right? It's true that water can be interpreted as restrictive to a fish. But is not water meant for his good? Anytime he is outside of that water, it is harmful. And the reality is that regulations that God gives to us are meant for our good. We may find all sorts of freedom outside of those regulations, but that's actually what will harm us. God, see, is making us holy so that we can have more of what is best for us. So that we can have more of what is most satisfying. And do you know what that is? It's God's special presence. It's that God would be with His children. When our non-Christian friends argue that Christianity is too restrictive or that you know there are just too many laws, then we ought to respond to them by saying that a human cannot be freer than when he follows Christ. Yes, we have restrictions as Christians. We're not going to, de- to deny that. But we are never freer than when we follow Christ. Is that true? In fact, our non-Christian friends who, who think that they are free are actually enslaved, aren't they? What are they enslaved to? They're enslaved to their own sin. And the reality is that an unbeliever doesn't have the freedom to say no to sin. He is enslaved to it. And yet we have been set free from the power and the enslavement of sin. And all the promises that we have are yes in Jesus. And therefore we can say no to sin and to Satan. And the result is that when God works with His um, guardrails of rules and regulations, when God works to make us holy, He's doing it so that we can get more of Him. More of what satisfies. More of His, more of His person. A better ability to see His glory. And that's why God sends, that's why God puts restrictions on our lives. Praise God that He does. Because they are not meant for our harm. Secondly, God desires to have a relationship with us. Since the time of the fall, God has been working to restore the relationship that He had with mankind. But our sin has created a huge problem. And that's why we need atonement and forgiveness of sin. For the Old Testament saint, that meant that they had to believe in the promises of God and and use the means of atonement. But their salvation was not ultimately found in those sacrifices, right? The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away the sin of the people. Is only temporary. The only person that has 
the authority, the ability to bring us into relationship with God, just like with the Old Testament believer, is the future Redeemer. For us, we know His name. For them, they didn't know His name, but they knew that there was a Savior who is coming. He'd be the Savior of the world. His name is Jesus, the Christ. The only way that we can enter into a relationship with God, the only way that we can have our sins atoned for is through Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. We need someone who is made of the same material of us as us and at the same time who has never sinned. The only person that fits that qualification is the God-man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He willingly laid down His life. He took upon Himself the punishment of our sins that we should have taken. And He became a curse for us as He hung on the tree because everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And the proof that His payment for our sins was accepted by God was that God raised Him from the dead. And so now, anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ as the only means of His salvation will be saved. You see, God desire. For us, God's desire for us is not to harm us, but to bless us. He wants to make us holy so that we can have more of Him to enter into a relationship with Him. Since the time of creation, God has been working to have a relationship with His people. We've created a huge chasm between us and God with our sin. But God has spanned that chasm in the person of Jesus Christ. Finally, God desires to bless His people. God desires to bless His people. In Jeremiah 24, God promised Judah that they would go into exile, but that He would restore him. God was saying, listen, I'm going to purify you through a kind of discipline, a a temporary purifying work of Babylon. Why? Why? Because you forgot why you were living. You forgot all the reasons why you were doing all these things with regard to the camp and the the tabernacle. You forgot all that. And so I'm going to send you away for, for a while so that you get the point that you need to be holy so that I can come and live among your presence so that I can bless you. Jeremiah 24, 7. God promises, I will give them a heart to know me. For I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. See what God is doing here? He's saying, I want to live among you, but I can't live if you don't come on my terms, if you're not holy. I can't bless you unless I'm living among you. Same idea in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 8. I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. You see, God was working to live among His people. We might think, well, that's great for an Old Testament Israel, but what about for us? I mean, we don't live in the Old Testament times. We're, we're not Israel. Well, listen to this passage from... Well, let's turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because here is a promise for the church at Corinth... <clears throat> That's not the passage I'm looking for. Chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Sorry about that. 
2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and by application, I think it applies to our church as well. Notice the promise that they have from God of what he desires, what he desires to do with them. And notice what it's preceded by. He desires to live among them so he can bless them, but it's preceded by his demand for their holiness. Look at verse 14. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So, what's he saying here in verses 14 and 15? He's saying, you need to be separate. You need to come out and be separate from these unbelievers. Don't enter into close relationships with unbelievers. Because what, what fellowship do you have with them? Right? You need to come out from among them and be separate effectively. And then he says in verse 16, Or what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? It doesn't make sense. We are the temple of the living God. So we are the dwelling place. And then notice, Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So that promise that God had in the Old Testament for Israel as they were exiled to Babylon, saying this is a purifying work that I'm doing, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, is not just for Old Testament Israel, is it? It's also for New Testament believers, because the, the Apostle Paul brings it into um, to our context, so that those on this side of the cross also have... God working to dwell among his people and to live and bless them. But first, we need to purify ourselves. The fact is that God wants to dwell among us so that he can prepare us for what is best for us, which is more of his presence. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. We'll see the fulfillment of this. God is wanting to dwell among his people and definitely we get an expression of that in this age. But there is coming a day when this will be fulfilled when we will be able to, to be in the presence of God's unimpeded presence, unimpeded by our own sin, unimpeded by the curse of the world, be able to enjoy God for who He is, we'll be able to see Him face to face, which we could not do in our current form, else we die. No one can see God and live. But in that day, we will live in God's presence. We will see His face. And when we see Him, Christ, we will be like Him, for we will see Him at as he is, First John says. But l- listen to the fulfillment of this idea. God wants to dwell among his people so that he can be their God and that they can be his people so that he can bless them. Chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. First things have passed away. Friend, God is working to dwell among His people. He's been working ever since the beginning of time so that we could dwell among Him, so that He could bless us. The Lord bless you and keep you and have His face shine upon you. God wants to bless us. But in order for him to bless us, he needs to live among us. And if God's going to live among us, then we need to be holy. Friends, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ today, then God is on your side. 
Yes, He gives laws and prohibitions to us, but they're not for our trouble or to restrict us from something that would make us happier. Those laws, those prohibitions are meant to free us from what enslaves us so that we can enter into a better relationship with God and experience more of His special presence both now and eternally. Praise God that God makes us holy even when it hurts so that He can live among us and bless us. Let's pray. Father, what a great truth that we can consider today. Lord, we admit and ask for Your forgiveness for thinking that Your laws are restrictive in in a way to harm us or to keep us from something that would make us more happy. But Lord, we we have gone outside of... We, we have trespassed Your laws many times and we have not found them to be satisfying. We have found them to be more... Um, more restrictive. We've found it, found it to be um, not pleasurable, maybe for a time, but not long term. We've experienced the consequences of our sin. We've not taken pleasure in that. Lord, when we've gone outside of your rules and regulations, we have not enjoyed your special presence. Lord, we know that you're always with us. So in one sense, you never leave us or forsake us even when we sin. But Lord, we want to experience a special measure of your presence because we have set ourselves apart unto you for holiness. So Lord, help us not to minimize the requirements that are necessary. First, to have a relationship with Christ. And then second, to not harbor sin in our hearts, to to seek forgiveness when we sin and, and be at peace with you. Lord, we we want Your blessing. We want to draw near to You. And and we know that James tells us in his letter that if if we want You to draw near to us, then we need to draw near to You. Lord, the, the chasm that there is between us and You as unbelievers or as believers when we're living in sin is not because of You. It's because of us. And so we need to own up to our own sin, seek holiness, accept Your Um, prohibitions and requirements for our lives and recognize that ultimately you have our best in mind. You want to show us more of yourself and your glory. Lord, when we have seen uh, a glimpse of your glory through your word and uh, through serving Jesus Christ, Lord, we have loved it and we have wanted more. But Lord, how our sins have have drawn us away and we have been drawn away from tempta- by temptations and our own lusts and we have been enticed by the things of this world which are passing away. Forgive us for that, Lord, and help us to find more of and, and our best satisfaction in You. Pray for Your help in Jesus' name. Amen.